When you have such a big deals on the table, of course, the sales functions, they are responsible for closing those deals. So you need to have a bold person who has the vision and is not afraid of taking such an enormous challenge. But on the other hand, what I see is the qualities that the person must have is also the empathy towards the others. He needs to be a team player and he needs to gain the trust of the team and also the customer. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of Veo Executive Academy podcast, where we give you exclusive insights from some of the brightest leaders today who all have one thing in common. They are or were students of our MBA programs. I'm Chadomir Pushica, your host, and it is my task to ask the right questions so that you can learn more about the person, their industry, their mindset, and how they manage to bring positive change to businesses and their communities. Karen is Strategic Clients Marketing Director at Oracle Corporation and a board member of VEU Executive Academy Female Leaders Network. She is a forward-thinking creative marketer with more than 15 years of experience with software, technology, public sector, and entrepreneurship across local and multinational positions. Her current core competencies are in leading B2B account-based marketing strategy and execution across global strategic clients at one of the leading providers of enterprise software and hardware, Oracle Corporation. Karen possesses a true passion for the latest MarTech trends, marketing insight, and innovation. Her inspiration comes from incredibly talented and empathic people with whom she engages daily and from her loving family. Hi, Karen, and it's such a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Chadomir. Pleasure is also on my side. Thank you for inviting me. There are many things to talk with you today, but I would love to start from one that only few can boast about. As your LinkedIn profile says, you are a forward-thinking, skydiving woman in tech. What did you feel when you first jumped off of a plane? Have you ever had time to think while you were falling down? And what did you feel? Yeah, so... When you see in front of you the depth that you are jumping in a space, it was, I think, four kilometer kind of a jump. So then you are thinking about yourself, oh my goodness, what I did, like, (laughs) this is, I don't know if this will happen. But the fact that it was a tandem, you are fully in the hands of the person who is jumping with you as an experienced professional. And you just need to follow the instruction that he told you before the jump. So I was fully in this mindset and I just kept myself to like go with the flow. And I will never forget about the step when we actually jump out of those open door. So as a human being, you have this self-preservation feeling and it's natural to us. So when we jump for the first time, when I jumped for the first time, I think that everything, the pressure, all those kind of feelings went out of my head and I just had such a very strange breath. And then it disappeared, of course, the time. So one second, you felt that one second is really like a 10 second. So (laughs) really, the time is relative. And it was amazing, definitely amazing. Then I was quite in a shock, what's going on. And then I had enormous pain in my ears because I, I didn't play with the pressure 
also they told me that, okay, try to balance the pressure, but it wasn't really possible. So I remember when my tandemer, he opened the parachute, I suddenly had extreme pain in my head because of my ears. And I kind of was half, not half dead, but I had a problem with my hearing. And I said, oh my goodness, what I did, what I did. But of course, within the half a day, everything, everything came back. And I was terrified, but so excited. It was even despite of the pain and despite of those self-preference feeling, I loved it and I decided to do it again. And that time, of course, I discussed this with the doctor and he gave me some kind of like drops into my nose and instructed me correctly what I have to do. Because, of course, some of the people when they are skydiving or diving in the sea or in the ocean, then you always have to work with the pressure. And my partner, he didn't feel anything. I mean, he didn't have any pain. And he said that, He's not sure if he will repeat it again. (laughs) (laughs) You also train boxing. How did that come around? And what does boxing give you? I really love it. It's such a fun. During pandemic, I focused on my body, on really doing something with my health. And I started to do regular exercise. And then I had an opportunity to actually, it came from my younger son. He told me that there is a trainer nearby our city and he's really tough and his trainings are super challenging. And (laughs) I said, okay, let's try that. So, so I tried and, and we started Boxing, actually, I was really not prepared that I will do a boxing. And when he taught me some tactics and techniques and then, you know, the speed and everything. And yeah. So I can see that there is a pattern there when it's very challenging and tough, you go for it. And I want to ask you now, these experiences, how do they relate and what do they give you? in your everyday business life. I think they do strengthen you, but I would like you to give me your perspective. Doing these, let's say, let's call them extreme things like skydiving or boxing. Do you feel they have any positive impact on your business life? Yeah, I think they do. They are kind of packaged uh, within the courage and not being a threat to jump into the projects that never been done before and prove the results. Yeah, there is a certain pattern. So behind of that, I think it's kind of a packaged with the curiosity as well and courage and not a threat of trying something new and learn from that. Yeah. Excellent. And your CV is sprinkled with success stories, millions of dollars of business you want for your company, for the strategic clients of Oracle, significant improvements in all areas where you were involved and awards that followed you throughout your career. I'd say you're a magician of sorts, or at least that's what anyone looking at your accomplishments would immediately think. And how do you do that? So first of all, those accomplishments are not mine, but team accomplishments through trusted partnership with sales, business development teams, marketing, architects, and business partner and many clients. Behind that is a hard work, definitely. Creativity, curiosity, 
and quick adaptation to changes and ambitions. And without the great lead, you won't be able to achieve those. So always behind of that is a great leader who guide the team. And what are the characteristics of this great leader? When you have such a big deals on the table, of course, the sales functions, they are responsible for closing those deals. So you need to have a bold person who has the vision and is not afraid of taking such an enormous challenge. But on the other hand, what I see is the qualities that the person must have is also the empathy towards the others. He needs to be a team player and he needs to gain the trust of the team and also the customer, the solutions and products that uh, we are going to sell will definitely transform their businesses. So the trust is very important. In our conversation some weeks ago, you mentioned account-based marketing or ABM as one of your core competencies. And this sounded very interesting to me. And can you tell me something more about ABM, what it's all about, and how it helped you win huge deals for Oracle, you or your team? So account-based marketing is a customer-centric approach that treats individual customers as market as their own. And uh, key tenants of ABM, how we are kind of calling it, include client-centric approach, which it's with tailored programs and campaigns aligned to customer priorities. Then research-based with highly focused targeting based on that research and partnership between sales and marketing with focus on reputation and relationships and client satisfaction and not just revenue. Mm -hmm. Can you just go a little bit deeper in this subject? This is one of your core competencies and you did mention that you would like to speak a little bit more about this and I really look forward to it. And I think all the students of marketing and sales would be really happy to hear this from you, like to go a little bit deeper into the process and, or maybe just take one specific deal and, you know, just explain briefly how it looks like. So perhaps let me give you a bit of a deeper insight about the ABM tactics to better understand what it is. So ABM marketing efforts generally fall into uh, one of three categories, one-to-one -one strategic ABM, which is a high degree of personalization and coordination with sales. Then it's a one-to-few, and that is a high-touch program targeting a small number of similar accounts with a tailored message. That's typically industry-focused. And then it's one-to-many, uh, kind of like a programmatic ABM, where you have a targeted B2B digital campaign marketing supported by MarTech, involving hundreds or thousands of accounts. And my specialization is in one-to-one strategic ABM. But in my career, I also was a part of the team who created a structure of one-to-few account-based marketing. So I'm applying nowadays more one-to-one -one strategic ABM, but I have the learnings from the one-to-one-to-few. So basically, when we will look at a deal, the marketeer is responsible for, first, it starts with insight. 
So you have a customer and you need to understand the customer as its whole. So it means that you need to know his pain points. You need to know the industry trends. You need to know what he wants to achieve within his transformational goals. Then you, of course, need to know also the audience. So it's a proper insight that research that I mentioned previously. And once you have this, then you are allowed to start to create a value proposition and messaging that will actually mirror the opportunities that the sales team and the accounting is working on. Then when you have these ready, then you need to segment the messaging to the right audience. So basically, you need to know to whom you will communicate what and when. The next step after is the campaign itself, when you are delivering those customer-centric assets and the solution, and there you can see the results. After that, of course, it's the engagement and communication where you are influencing those decision makers to basically close the deal. So behind of that, it's a whole strategy that you need to work on. And it's a, not a short-term project, it's a long-term project. And basically achieving such big transformational deals that we closed with my colleagues, those taking time and it's usually it's very hard to say the time but it can be two years for example and after that of course it's very important to also focus on the post-deal engagement so when you basically help the team to close the deal then you as a marketeer you need to make sure that the customer satisfaction and the advocacy part is hand in hand and you can build the partnership with them. So it's a very complex process and this requires a team effort on various fronts. So cooperation with a lot of line of businesses across Oracle, but also with customer. That's what it sounded like. And that's what I wanted to ask you. How big are the teams and how diverse, how many different departments are involved in this? Do you also work with production, engineer, sales as well? Of course, that's normal. But how many people are really involved in this? And advantages are clear, but are there any disadvantages to, to this? I don't think that there are some disadvantages. The only disadvantage might be when during such a long process, when you are constantly working in order to kind of help sales to close the deal, when your team changed. So when the leader, for me, the leader within this project is strategic client director, who is considered as a CEO of the account within our company. So he's responsible for, for driving the right strategy and building the relationships and listening the customer, etc. So when this person will not become a part of the team, then it's very hard. So this could be the only kind of a disadvantage when the leader of the project is gone and then the new leader is on board. But it doesn't mean that the deal will not close, of course, but then, you know, it's then the time will actually broaden and other aspects into the strategy will be bring. So you perhaps need to rework something that wasn't working previously well. So there are various type of aspects. But of course, all those deals that have been closed, all those leaders were with the project from the beginning until mm -hmm. the end. Yeah. You have been with Oracle for 11 years now and in different positions from field marketing manager, director of account-based marketing strategy, 
Pursuit Marketing, Growth Marketing Director, Innovation, Client Transformation Lead, to your current position of Strategic Clients Marketing Director. Each position brought different challenges. Which were the biggest challenges you were faced with in these different positions? And which ones did you enjoy the most? In my current job, I had to overcome a lot of business challenges, like challenges in changing management and then, of course, naturally setting up new goals. I would say that the biggest one came with pandemic, when all of us suddenly became home workers. And previously, I had very vibrant and traveling business schedule, but suddenly all stopped. As everyone on the planet felt anxious at the time, Oracle took immediate action and they supported us with preliminary local manager allocated to those whose managers were abroad and gave us maximum support. So I think that this challenge was so far the biggest one for me to kind of cope with the new setup. Of course, you have challenges during your day-to-day job quite often, but and those challenges, I see them as a part of a day job. But such a challenge that was brought with pandemic, it was really a game changer for all of us, really all of us. And this is, if I will evaluate during my career, all of them, I think this was the biggest one to kind of cope with a new setup. And maybe therefore I started to do boxing, (laughs) (laughs) completely something else, because I felt that, that I have to do something previously. As I mentioned, I had a very vibrant business schedule, traveling a lot, and suddenly all stopped. So I had to also kind of challenge myself in my personal life. But my previous career, my previous job, where I worked for the Ministry of Interior Migration Office in Slovakia, I truly loved that one. And I was a part of the team who was working on the creation of the five-year action plan for migration and asylum policy in Slovakia. And especially the resettlement of refugees was the time a big project and success among UNHCR in Geneva, when that time Antonio Guterres was a high commissioner for refugees. And we had so many discussions with UNHCR and International Organization for Migration at that time because Slovakia was part of the resettlement refugee project. And we were helping with refugees coming from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iraq, Somalia and Palestine. And I was together with our team at the time in the evacuation center in Humenet, that's east of Slovakia. It was a period from 2009 to 2011. And we have provided temporary shelter for some like 260 refugees, mostly women with kids at the time. And that time... The challenge that I went through was, you know, when you are meeting with those people who are really in a very difficult life circumstances, it opened my eyes and this job gave me a lot. I had a feeling that I'm contributing to the society and I'm changing lives of the others. And then those people were so thankful that we've been helping them and it always stayed inside of me. Would that be the one that you enjoy the most? I would say that this was one of those that it taught me a lot in terms of how people are overcoming their, I don't know even how to say this, Chedomir. It was, it was really, it was really also emotional, but it gave me kind of a 
very strong feeling that thanks to doing my day-to-day job, it helped people and I was part of the team who was transforming their lives to a better future and also for their kids. This is something, the social aspect, we don't have. And in your business life, your decisions have big impact. And as a forward-thinking strategist, how do you guide your decisions? So I would say that I'm always relying on my inner compass, my gut, <laughs> but also as I'm listening the responsible voice in my head as a mother and daughter. So the responsibility is also a big part of my decision. And it's also a balance between my feelings and ratio, my brain. So when this is in balance from my point of view, then I feel that that's the right decision that I have to take. And what was the most painful decision you had to take? And uh, what were the outcomes? And what would you do differently if you could? So maybe I will use again example from my previous job when I was with the immigration office. I remember I was part of the conference where I was supposed to represent Slovakia on the topic of unaccompanied minors, which means that those are kids, basically refugees under 18 years old, right? And we had a slot the time as we were working on the research together with other partners. And I had everything prepared. I was sitting at the airport and just before boarding, I noticed that I don't have my wallet, that someone stole it. And it was kind of like you are standing in a line for boarding and then the lady is asking, okay, Mrs. Sapirova, your ticket. And then, oh my goodness, I cannot board. So I said, oh, please give me a minute. So I immediately called my manager at the time and I told him what happened, that basically I cannot travel because I don't have any money, any credit card, nothing, just my passport. And of course, that I will try to immediately contact my family or someone who can actually wire me some money. And that time I will never forget what he told me, that however you will decide, I will respect your decision. So I decided not to go because I didn't feel comfortable to actually landing in a country without any money and even you need to take transport, how you will basically. So I, so of course that I tried to call my family, my friends, but it wasn't really possible in such a short time to wire me a needed amount. And I decided not to go, which was that time I was so excited to go there. I had a fantastic presentation about the uncompanied minors. And of course that I was sad. It was very hard decision for me not to go. But on the other hand, I really appreciated the sentence, what my manager at that time told me. However you will decide, I will respect your decision. And that's basically what I'm also trying to teach my kids and try to follow this sentence throughout my life. And yeah, so I don't know how it will end up (laughs) if I would go. I think that it will be good, but this was kind of, I wouldn't say that it was bad decision. I think that still from my point of view, it was the right one, but of course with kind of a sadness. So I, I believe and I assume that now if you had a second chance to do the same thing, and you were in the same situation, you would still stay and not leave, right? That's a very good question. And yeah, I will do the same. 
but it's an amazing lesson. I love that thing that you said about your manager and respecting the decision, whatever you decide. However, I have to add that when, of course, the day after came to his office and we talked about it, because, of course, then I had to go to the police because my wallet was stolen, etc. So I had to have a like a police report about what happened. So he told me, Karen, if I would be in your shoes, I would go. <laughs> I'm sure that you would manage. But seeing myself to actually, you know, I think it was Milana or Rome that time, seeing myself to actually take a taxi, even that I know that I have no money to pay. And furthermore, this conference, I didn't know anyone. So it was not like you are going to somewhere when you can just call your colleague, okay, please help me. It wasn't really possible. So I didn't want to put myself in such a shoe. But he told me, so imagine the fact that if he would be in my situation, he would go. But although he told me this sentence, which I have respect for that, he told me another sentence, which also kind of will always stay with me. And this was when I was becoming a mom and was very hard for me to actually go to a maternity leave because that time I really loved my job. We were doing great things. So I kind of felt that, wow, okay, this is not really the right time. But he told me, Karen, everyone in job is replaceable. But as a mother, you are not. That's really good. It puts you, I think, at ease. And you can actually look at things from a different perspective. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Really good. Now, Karen, I would like to go to your education and your, your background is impressive. What tricks or techniques do you use to learn effectively and keep that knowledge over long periods of time? And what teacher left the deepest impact on you? I'm asking you this because I believe that our teachers really make so much impact on our lives and can do so much about our choice of career and life. So how do you do that? How do you learn? And what is your style? What would you suggest? Some tricks and tips to people? So I think that I'm learning constantly every day by reading, listening podcasts. I love that. <laughs> From Chartered Institute of Marketing. Uh, so for my job, it's a fantastic source of information. And I'm also learning from my colleagues. As you mentioned previously, I have the privilege to work with extremely talented and, and, and empathic people here at Oracle. And yeah, and also for my company, because my company is opening me doors to the latest Martech trends and insight and innovations. But of course, I'm learning also from my friends and also from my kids. So I see now, nowadays, as learning from the life, from every day, by people, by your choices, and you can't stop learning. So that's kind of also my mantra that always stay curious. And when I look back in my learning path, I met so many great, great teachers. It's really hard to kind of spotlight just a few of them because I most probably been so lucky that really I made great, great teachers during my learning, <laughs> during my learning path. 
And what were the characteristics that made them great? What were they doing right? I think those of them who were trying to kind of multiply you as a person, so not act as a diminisher. So they didn't see the world black and white, but they see it as a technicolor. So when we were working on some projects, they always make sure that they brought the best out of us. And they didn't act as a superior to actually telling us, you, you know, those autocratic type of teachers who are just uh, setting up certain guidelines and everybody needs to follow. Yeah, I grew up within the communism era. So we had a, a lot of teachers like that because that was the style in those countries. So every the crowd had to follow, right? And there were some boundaries and nothing else existed. So as a child, I came through like two waves of teaching styles. So after the Velvet Revolution, which happened in Czechoslovakia at the time, suddenly the schooling aspect and teachers, they started to see the kids also through the different eyes. They gave us completely new perspective and they reworked because they felt free. So they reworked on their teaching practices and they guide us through our lives. And yeah, and then, of course, during my studies at Executive Academy at the VU, we had so many great professors from abroad, from Europe, from the US, from Argentina, Brazil, from all those international residencies that we visited, University of Hong Kong, and also Indian Business School. I have to say that the MBA studies, this was one of the best period of my life. Mm -hmm. And now speaking about the MBA, what is one major takeaway from your MBA studies? I would just repeat that this was definitely one of the best years of my life. And studying an MBA, it's about network as well. So thanks to that, I'm actually also a member of the Female Leaders Network, which is amazing, amazing network of great professional women, business leaders. And we are all enjoying that and helping also and promoting inclusion, diversity and yeah, and helping other female business women to succeed. You're doing a great job, really a great job. I already met several members of the Female Leaders Network and, you know, just amazing. My compliments to you. And now going to books, what do you think should be mandatory reading and why? Just choose one book. Yeah. First of all, I don't like a word mandatory in reading. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just say that a book that influenced me and I really enjoy it. And maybe some of the people will disagree. I know that when you are learning the language at school, you have certain mandatory books that are part of your education system. But I will be not talking about those books, but I really enjoyed a book from Ayn Rand, The Fontaine Head. So this one is really, really great. I read it a couple of years ago, and it was one of the favorite books that I read. It's a demonstration of how the principle of egoism and altruism work out in people and in the events of their lives. So I will not tell more, <laughs> but okay. as a 
great tip, Ayn Rand, the Fontaine had. And another thing that is definitely inspiring, and it's one of my favorite, would not call it again as a mandatory, but it's just adding another aspect in life. It's Japanese haiku poems. And I will just quote, if I may, one haiku poem from Matsuo Basho, who is one of the most famous haiku writers. And he made about 1,000 haiku poems throughout the lifetime. And this poem is from the narrow road to the deep north which is the most famous haiku collection in Japan. And it's uh, this, uh, spring is passing, the birds cry, and the fish's eyes are with tears. Wow. Thank you for sharing this. Welcome. I hope you like it. I definitely do. This was unexpected. Thank you. Welcome. So now you can find his book, and I'm sure that you will find even more great haiku poems that will resonate with you. And sometimes what we are doing with friends, we are just having those haiku book, and we are just opening the page and reading the haiku that's just appearing. And it's always like, wow, that's nice. And then we are just debating about it. So yeah, that's, that's a very nice. nice time how you can spend with your friends. I'm definitely an avid reader, and I will look for those two books, like The Fountainhead and uh, and the other one. What's the the, the author? Matsuo Basho. From the narrow the narrow road to the deep north. I will look for it now, Karen. I was thinking of asking you one more question. Actually, several more questions, but I don't want to take too much of your time. We may repeat this sometime in the future. And Karen, thank you so much for being here. It's been really super insightful for me and I believe for all our listeners. And maybe we can repeat this discussion, this conversation in the future with some more topics because I think there is a lot to explore with you. Thank you so much, Adamir. And I also enjoyed talking with you and all your great questions. And I will be more than happy to provide more insight and to give more insight to listeners. And yeah, it was my big pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Hello again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Veu Executive Academy podcast, Know How to Inspire. Now, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to our channel on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, or check out our website at www.executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. That is executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. Last but not least, spread the word, because the more you share knowledge, the more inspiring it gets.